This morning we're going to look a little interlude here at Psalm 1, but we're going to start in Deuteronomy 30. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is speaking to the Israelites at the end of his life, and he lays before the Israelites two paths, two choices, and two destinies. And we see this happening all throughout the scriptures where God makes it clear that there are only two ways. So if you're in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we're just going to read verses 15 to 20. Moses writes, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, And you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. So we see here again, God laying before Israel that there are two paths, one that will lead to life and good, and the other that will lead to evil and death. Psalm 1 is very similar, so flip over to Psalm 1. We're going to read the psalm, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive in and pick it apart. And I promise you we're going to get through the whole psalm, but about 30 minutes is in the first word or so. So it's kind of Pastor Rob-esque here. Uh, So we're going to read the psalm to get the context, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in verse by verse. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, as we come to your word now, we're so thankful for it. Thank you for revealing to us these two paths, a path that leads to life, life today and life eternal, and path that leads to death, sorrow today, and eternal separation from you. We thank you that you have revealed progressively through the scriptures how one can be made right with you. As we open up this psalm, we pray that you would help us to see what you are showing to us in the blessed man, the one who puts his trust in you. Help us to see that so many around us, maybe even some in this room, are on the wide path to destruction. 
Father, open our hearts to see, to understand, to believe, and to comprehend. May you do a work this morning that will be to the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 1 presents to us two types of men. We have the blessed man, and we have, in verse 4, the wicked man. And the, the word that distinguishes these two men is this word, blessed. Deuteronomy set before us life and good, death and evil. Psalm 1 puts before us blessedness and wickedness. Reminded of Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus talks about the broad road that leads to destruction, and he talks about the narrow door and the narrow road that leads to life. All throughout the scriptures, we have this contrasting uh, truth that there are only two people, only two destinies, only two directions. So we start with these two men, and the difference between these two men is this word, blessed. One man is blessed, and the other man is not blessed. So we have some preconceived notions in America when we think about blessedness, and it's often tied to material possessions. And this, we know this, most of us here know this, but this is super important and a good example of why we need to be very careful in our biblical interpretation. And we have these two words of exegesis, meaning taking out of the word, seeing what the word says, and allowing that to inform our thinking, taking the definitions from the word, versus eisegesis, where we take our context and our language and try and put it into the text. So what happens here, and we've heard it preached this way before, is that we take our cultural thoughts and our cultural language and we try and put it into the text. This is bad, and we'll talk about it, but our goal is to find out what the original language is and what is the original intent of the author. What is he telling us? Not what do we think or what does our culture tell us? So here's the danger. You can kind of see where we're going. If we start here in Psalm 1 with the premise of our thought and our language about blessedness in America, we will come to the wrong conclusion. The American vernacular is when someone tells us, hey, you have a really nice home, or hey, that's a great car, or you car people out there. I have two minivans, so no one's told me that lately. <laughs> or your family is really nice, whatever. We often will say, well, thank you, I'm blessed. And that's, that's an okay, that's like just what we do and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we take that concept and immediately think of Psalm 1 that this is what he's talking to us about, we'll end up in the wrong conclusions. Because this is the premise. If I live the life of Psalm 1, if I just read it and do what it says, then I'll be blessed and I'll prosper. And it doesn't help us if you look in verse four, at the end, sorry, verse three, in all that he does, he prospers. This is an easy prosperity gospel psalm to preach, right? It's like you do these things and you're gonna be blessed and you're gonna have things and you're gonna prosper. But we know that this is not true. The prosperity gospel, one, does not align with reality. It's a, it's a fabricated gospel. It's not based on revealed truth. It's a false gospel. In fact, it's no gospel at all gospel at all. And we know this by experience. We've seen people, we've read stories of people that have bought into this gospel. Come to Jesus and you'll be happy and wealthy and wise. And they go down that road and it doesn't deliver on its promises. Jesus never promised us these things. And so then they walk away from God and they walk away from any faith that they may have had. And it's all because they started with the wrong premise. So we also know this more importantly than experiences. We know it by scripture. The prosperity gospel just does not square with scripture at all. In Jesus' first coming, he intensifies suffering. He intensifies persecution. In fact, his summary statement, John 16, in the world you will have tribulations. Jesus did not come to give us a comfortable lifestyle. He did not come 
to give us that what is easy. So whatever the word blessed means here in Psalm 1, we have to be really careful that we don't read into it what our culture or what our mindset is. It can't be a name it and claim it promise. There's no magic equation here. There's no step-by-step process to prosperity. So with that as a qualifier of what we need to be careful not to do, the question then is, how does the Bible use the word blessed? What is he talking about? It adds to the complexity that we're going from language to language. So the Hebrew uh, language, which is what the Old Testament is written in, has actually three different words that is translated in different ways to some form of bless or blessing or blessed. So just very briefly, we won't have time to dive into each one of them, and they get I went down this rabbit hole for like 20, 20 hours, probably this week or last week. Uh, intriguing study, but not enough to uh, deliver here. But there's three. So one is to bless. And this is both God blessing man and man blessing God through worship and adoration. So this is the Genesis, right? God blessed Adam and Eve. He blessed the creation. That's this type of blessed. It's used over 300 times in ESV translations. 70 of them are in the Psalms. So it's a, it's a term that shows up often in the Psalms, but it's not, our, it's not our blessed. The second one is a blessing. Similarly, shows up in the ESV a number of times, 66 times and nine times in the Psalm, but it's not our blessing. It's not our blessedness. So we come to this blessedness and the third option, which is what this word is, and we've heard this, many of us have heard Psalm 1 taught before. It's a word that best encapsulated as happiness, but not happiness like we think of it. It's a deep joy, a satisfaction. The Hebrew thought denotes a state of true well-being, that it is well with your soul. Flip to Matthew chapter 5. So you're going New Testament, way to the right in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus uses this same word in the Greek. It's the, it's the Greek equivalent to our Hebrew word blessed. When he's in the Sermon on the Mount, And if I didn't make the argument well enough that the prosperity gospel isn't what he's talking about uh, in Psalm 1, Jesus makes the point here when you see what he tells us will bring us happiness, what will be blessedness. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 2, and Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 11, blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the type of blessedness, the type of happiness. It has nothing to do with circumstances, wealth, or health. It's this deep, soul-satisfying comfort in the person and work of Jesus that we'll get to. It's this true well-being. It reminds me of one of my favorite hymns, It Is Well With My Soul, and I I promise I won't sing it, but read a couple of stanzas, and this, I think, encapsulates this word of blessedness, regardless of the circumstances. 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, so whether peace or sorrow, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. So Psalm 1 introduces this book of Psalms that is just chocked full of emotion. It's chock full of sadness and despair and lament, but it's also chock full with joy and gladness and blessedness. And that's how he introduces the psalm, the book of Psalms in Psalm 1. So we're going to dive into this now. Psalm 1 is going to show us in the midst of worldly tribulation and trial, in the midst of sorrow and trouble, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the ultimate earthly fruit of this blessed man, this blessed and happy life. And then secondly, we're going to see the eternal end of the blessed life as contrasted to the wicked. So the Psalm 1 begs the question of how does one enter this state of true well-being? And the reason it begs the question, it doesn't really give us the answer. It's going to see as we read it and as we study it, it's just going to give us attributes of what this life looks like, but it doesn't tell us how we get it. So we need to go to a couple other places. Go back to the Psalms and go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is going to start to answer the question of how do we enter into this blessed state, this state of true well-being. And you'll see in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32, Rob, thanks for leaving Kleenex for me. Appreciate that. (laughs) Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, use the same word, blessed. It's the same, same word as we saw in Psalm 1. So this is a masculine of David. Verse 1 of, verse, of chapter 32 of the Psalms. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So how do we become happy? How do we get this blessedness from God? The one that is blessed, the man, the woman that is blessed, is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, who the Lord does not count his iniquity against him. Okay, keep, hang with me. I'm taking you all over the place, but go to Romans chapter 4. Hopefully you'll see why I landed there when you turn there and look at verses 7 and 8. So Psalm 32 tells us that the blessedness of this man comes to the one who has been forgiven of the Lord. But it doesn't. We could go on in Psalm 32 and it gives us some hints. But this is the beautiful part of Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And as God continues to reveal uh, his word to us over time, over these centuries of time, he gives us more and more understanding. So Paul picks this idea up in Romans chapter 4. And if you've gotten there and you look at 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4, depending on the format of your Bible, it may be indented in quotes. And it's actually... Uh, quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those who law, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will, count, will not count his sin. 
So before I look at verse 1, I need to make this qualification. I don't think we had to make maybe 20 years ago. The Bible is very clear, and most of us in this room know this. The Bible is very clear that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and need forgiveness. Some of us read Psalm 32. Some in the culture read Psalm 32, and they don't understand the need for forgiveness. They don't understand the blessedness that comes from forgiveness because they don't understand that we need forgiveness. So if you're here this morning, and this is kind of new information to you, if you're visiting, talk to me afterwards or talk to the person that invited you. The trouble is that we find ourselves in is that we all need forgiveness because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are separated from this holy God in need of forgiveness. If we don't understand that, that's so basic and important. It's so necessary that we recognize every man, woman, and child is apart from God in their sin, and they need to deal with it. If we don't understand that we need to deal with it, then this whole thing of being forgiven and blessedness doesn't make sense. But if we all understand that we are all under sin, separated from God, in need of salvation, then we come to this place where we say, okay, if I'm going to be blessed, I have to deal with the sin problem. So how does God deal with the sin problem? And that's where we get to Romans chapter 4. So Paul's quoting uh, Psalm 32, and he tells us exactly how we're blessed, how we are blessed by being forgiven. So Psalm, or sorry, Romans 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. So this is foundational and so important. The difference between justification, being made right before God, and sanctification, the ongoing process of being conformed to the image of Christ. If we come to Psalm 1 and we just try to live this life without finding our sins are forgiven in the person and work of Jesus Christ, number one, we will, we will get frustrated and we will fail. You cannot live this blessed life in your own strength. And when we get to the application of Psalm 1, we're going to feel like it's legalism, like we're saying you need to do these things. And ultimately, if you approach Psalm 1 that way, you will not find the prosperity that's promised, and ultimately, you will find yourself in the camp of the wicked. So if you're here this morning, this is new news. If you've never heard the simple gospel message that we are separated from Christ and need of a Savior, then don't leave here today. The only way to be blessed, the only way to find this soul-satisfying, eternally lasting comfort is to come to Jesus, to recognize your need for him, to repent of your sin, and to believe in what he did in his work. Romans is clear. Paul is very clear. We are not justified. We are not made right. We don't become blessed by anything that we do. It's what Christ has already done. And by embracing that, we come to this eternal state of true happiness. Okay, with that, now I think we're finally ready for Psalm 1. A long introduction. 
So the question now is, what does this blessed man look like? What does his life look like? The one that has come and has his sins forgiven because of what Christ has done and is renewed by Jesus, what will his life look like? And we see these two earthly experiences. We see the blessed, justified man, and we see the wicked, unjustified man, the one that is still in his sins whose sin has not been forgiven. So the first thing we see in verse 1, what the blessed man does not do, and this by default is what the wicked man would do. So look at verse 1, blessed is the man, and just to be clear, that man is a general term, man, woman, and child, so every individual. So blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the blessed man does not do these things. We've heard this taught before. There's three cool triplicates here. Stands, uh, or sorry, walks, stands, sits in the council, in the way, in the seat of the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. You see this downward spiral of someone that begins walking, begins in the council, just getting counsel from the wicked, but then he begins to stand in their way, in the way of sinners. He starts to become like them, and then he sits down in the seat of the scoffer. I've taken you here before, probably many times that I've preached before. Go to Romans chapter 1. I just, it's a foundational truth in my own thinking, and I see it in Psalm 1, verse 1, showing up in Romans chapter 1. And we won't look at the whole thing, but I want you to see this wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, and how we can just step by step, go down the spiral and find ourselves apart from God. So Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, the wicked, when the psalm writer talks about the wicked, it's a general term of those that um, just are unjustified. They're the unjustified man. It's a general wickedness. And that's what we see in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So they know, they've heard about God, they've heard about the things of God, but they are suppressing the truth. So the wise man, the blessed man, does not walk amongst these people, amongst the unwise. He doesn't take their counsel because they're suppressing the truth. We are truth seekers, we want the truth, we need the truth, but the, blessed, the wicked man does not, uh, does not have the truth. They're suppressing the truth. And then it goes on, in, if you drop your eyes down to verse 21 and 23, we see it spiraling down further. For although they knew God, so now we're, they have some knowledge of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So they've moved from this general suppressing of truth to exchanging the truth about God for a lie and starting to worship other things, created things. This is the step of the sinner. And then we know in verse 24, 26, 28, that because of the hardness of heart, God gives them over. Verse 24, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then we get to the scoffer. If we were to read this list of sins, but I think it's encapsulated in verse 32 of Romans 1, 
though they know God's righteous decrees. And so now not only do they know God, they know something about his righteous decrees. They know about his commandments. That those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval. And some translations would add hearty approval to those who practice them. So this is the scoffer. This is the one that is unashamed about his sin. And in fact, he applauds the sin of others. So the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So the first application question is, are you walking in the counsel of the wicked? As you think about who you're listening to, who your friends are, what the input is that you're taking, are you listening to those that are not formed by the word of God? If you are, you will not find blessedness there. You will not find the blessing and fulfillment of God in the counsel of the wicked. The blessed man does not walk, does not stand, does not sit in the counsel, way, or seat of the wicked sinner or scoffer. So if the blessed man does not do this, then what does the blessed man do? Verse 2, of Psalm, back in Psalm 1. And by contrast, the wicked man does not do these things. So Psalm 1 and verse 2. But instead of walking in the counsel of the wicked, his delight is in the law of the Lord. This word delight is a, is a wonderful word. It's a desire, a longing, a pleasure. It's what is just your inner gut desires to do. It's not something that we create. It's something that is just within us. And the psalm writer is saying that when you're walking with the Lord, when you've been justified by grace, by the person and work of Jesus Christ, our desires change. And we begin to delight not in the things of the world, not in the things that the wicked are chasing, but we delight in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord here is a very broad term. We sometimes talk of the law as the Ten Commandments, and it is. Sometimes we talk of the law as the first five books of the Bible. That's the law, and it is. But here, it's a very broad description of the law, and it's really just all direction, instruction, and revelation from God that God has given us. And it contrasts the counsel of the wicked. So the blessed man doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked. He listens to the counsel of the Lord. He listens to his word, and he is delighting in it. So the second question of application is, do you delight, do you find joy in, and do you get great pleasure from God's word? Or does your time in God's word, if it exists, does your time in God's word seem like duty? Is it dry, robotic, unfruitful? Have you sometimes spent time hearing and reading God's word and you walk away completely empty and unchanged, sometimes not even remembering what you've heard or what you've read? If that's the case, two things. Number one, and, and, and most importantly, is are you really trusting in Jesus? This goes back to point number one. If you've never delighted in God's word, if you've never heard a sermon that has just impacted you and changed you, if you've never opened God's word and seen life, I don't, there's a delicate balance here, but I, I want to encourage you to consider, are you really in Jesus? Are you really trusting in him? Has he really renewed you? Because this is what happens, and I mentioned it earlier, that what happens at regeneration when we're justified in Christ is that our old desires go away. God gives us this new heart. He talks about giving us a new heart with new desires. And our desires will be what the scriptures tell us, which is that they will delight in God's word. So if you've never experienced this, I would point you back to come to Jesus. 
He, he is inviting you to come. He's inviting you to participate and to enjoy this blessed life. Because ultimately, we don't choose our desires. We don't choose our longings. When I'm hungry, I don't, I don't consciously have to think about that. I just have a desire to eat. When I need to go to the bathroom at three in the morning, I have to get out of bed and do that. It's just a desire that's built into us. It's, a, it's something within us. And these aren't things that we change. It's not something that we can choose to change. It's not something that's acquired by a checklist of to-dos. We don't change it by our willpower or by keeping some letter of the law. Our spiritual desires are changed first and foremost by coming to Jesus and being justified in him. Where our sins are forgiven, we're born again and given a new heart. So if you're here this morning and have never experienced that, just talk to someone, talk to me. There's glorious truth of coming to Jesus and finding these. But probably for most of us in this room, including myself, uh, there are many seasons where we don't need to question our salvation. We're secure in Christ and we're resting in his promises, but our time in the word is just lackluster. We're, our walk is um, just not vibrant, and we do. We walk away from sermons, we walk away from reading the word, and we don't remember what even we read. And I think the key, if you find yourself in that situation this morning or any time in the future, is found in the next line of Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I think this is the key to the lackluster walk of the believer, the one that is not working to be, to be justified. They're justified in Christ and Christ alone and his work and his work alone, but now one that has been justified, but they're not experiencing that joy day to day. And I think it's because we don't meditate on God's word. Meditate just means to muse, to ponder, to consider deeply, to slow down enough, not to just check, 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 did my reading plan, check, 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 I prayed. It's this stopping and considering. And what he says here is that we're doing it day and night. It reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 6 in uh, when Moses talks about that while we sit in our house, while we walk by the way, while we lie down, while we rise, all of the time we are speaking of God and the things of God. We're musing and meditating on what God has revealed to us in his word. Thomas Watson uh, said, the reason we often come away cold from reading God's word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. Uh, I just started re-listening to this. If you haven't read um, and been blessed by Donald Whitney's book, The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, it's reprinted uh, recently, great read, talks about a number of spiritual disciplines, uh, but he defines meditation as this. Meditation is deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture or upon life from a scriptural perspective for the purpose of understanding, application, and prayer. So this spending time, not just reading God's word, not just praying, but allowing God's word to seep deep down into your soul. Meditation is such a huge part for the growing believer to delight in his word. In fact, Whitney's book, he has in the first four chapters, intro, then he has two chapters of Bible intake. So reading, preaching, this different ways that we uh, take God's word in. But 40% of those two chapters, he dedicates to meditation. To getting God's word really into us is slowing down and letting this word ruminate within our hearts and within our minds. 
if your time in the word is stagnant, likely your time in prayer is also stagnant and maybe non-existent. And his fourth chapter, Whitney's fourth chapter is on prayer, and 30% of that is focused on meditation. The, his closing quote in that section of his book is this, meditation is the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. We so often will read God's word and think, okay, now I need to pray, but my prayers are not at all informed with what I read. The missing link between those two things is to think deeply on God's word, to consider it, and then pray through what God has revealed. One of the, it's a bit of a longer quote, but Thomas Manton wrote this regarding this. Meditation is a middle sort of duty between the word and prayer, and hath respect to both. The word feedeth meditation, and meditation feedeth prayer. These duties must always go hand in hand. Meditation must, fo- must follow hearing and precede prayer. To hear and not to meditate is unfruitful. And we've all experienced that. We hear and we hear and we intake, and there's podcast after podcast and YouTube after YouTube, and we walk away and like, what did I listen to for the last two hours? <clears throat> so to hear and not meditate is unfruitful. We may hear and hear, but it is like putting a thing into a bag with holes. It is rashness, then, to pray and not to meditate. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation and let out by prayer. These three duties must be ordered that one may not jostle out the other. Men are barren, dry, and sapless in their prayers for want of exercising themselves in holy thoughts." So if I can encourage you in any takeaway from this sermon, from Psalm 1, I would encourage you to discipline yourself in biblical meditation, meditation, to build this into your daily rhythm, daily rhythm of being in God's word, meditating deeply on God's word, and allowing that to inform your prayer. The spiritual disciplines, this being one of them, are the primary means by which the Holy Spirit of God slowly day by day, moment by moment, degree by degree, changes us and replaces our fleshly desires with spiritual desires, with delighting in the world, and is replaced with delighting in God and God's word. First Timothy chapter four and verse seven says, train yourself for godliness. Another translation, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And a third, exercise yourself toward godliness. The spiritual discipline of meditation will increase your delight in God's word and it will reignite your prayer life. So I can, I can sense, just I knew it would be because I, I did it myself, of this feeling of legalism from the pulpit. Chad's saying, you need to read, you need to meditate, you need to pray, here's the checklist, do these things. And I don't, it shouldn't be that way. God does not command us to train discipline and exercise ourselves as a form of justification. This is why I started with justification. If you're doing these things to earn some sort of favor, to become saved, it won't work. You're justified by Jesus Christ and him alone in his death, burial, and resurrection. But when you have been saved, Bible intake, meditation, and prayer are not duty. They're not drudgery. They are beautiful means of grace that God uses to grow us in godliness. So that would be my biggest challenge to each of us, to me included. As I studied Psalm 1, it's like, oh, I need to get back into 
the discipline of meditating on God and God's word. Okay, I told you we were going to get through. I told Sam, who's running slides, that the first slides are going to go slow, and then we're going to be fast after that. Uh, so, Psalm, back to Psalm 1, in the next stanza, what we see here is he goes on to tell us what is produced in the blessed man. So we see the results of the life of the blessed man, and we see the results of the life of the wicked man in verses 3 and 4. He, the blessed man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What a contrast. The blessed man is the tree that's planted by streams of water. Think of an enormous tree, healthy and strong, really immovable. Storms, uh, weather, whatever comes its way, it is, its roots are deep into the soil of God's word and it stands firm, bearing its fruit in season, prospering in all it does. That contrast, that's the blessed man in contrast to the wicked man, to the chaff that the wind blows away. For you kiddos that don't know what chaff is, most of us non-farmers, we don't know what chaff is, but if you've been in the shop working with, in our house it'd be working with mom, if you're in the shop working with mom or dad, and you get some sawdust and you put it in your hand and you blow it, you know, that's fun, and you make a mess all over the garage floor, that's what he's talking about here. The life of the wicked man is just like that. You blow it and it disappears and you never see it again. And chaff is even, is even finer and more worthless than sawdust. So this is the contrast. You can either, in coming to Jesus and resting in him and growing in him in the disciplines of grace, you become this enormous tree that is fruitful and prosperous and a blessing to others, or your life can be like chaff that the wind blows away. So that's the result of the life, the earthly life. But then he goes on in verses 5 and 6 to tell us the ultimate end of the blessed man, and the ultimate end of the wicked man. Both of these are seen in the context of the wicked, but we have some clues into uh, the conclusion of the blessed man's life in eternity. So verses five and six. Therefore the wicked man will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what we see here is that the wicked man first does not stand in the judgment. In contrast, the blessed man does, and he doesn't stand in his work. Romans chapter 4, he stands in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He will stand in the judgment. And then this glorious phrase at the end of verse 5, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is what God's doing from all, from creation and the fall to now to whenever Christ returns. He is calling people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to create a congregation of the righteous those that will forever in eternity be this blessed man to worship and to praise him. And the wicked will not stand in that congregation, but the blessed will. He will be part of that eternal congregation of the righteous. So these are the two ends of uh, our two men. The blessed man, man lives forever in the congregation of the righteous, worshiping God, and we see at the end of the psalm, but the wicked will perish, just like the chaff, that's blown away. Okay, two points of application that we've already kind of touched on, but let me just wrap the message here in laying these before you. Number one, do you desire to be this person? 
this blessed person of Psalm 1. I think as we look at it and if we understand and if we believe God's word in the contrast of this tree and the chaff, then certainly we all want to be there. And the first and most important thing is come to Jesus. You can't do this on your own. There's no way you can work your way to being a blessed man, but coming to Jesus and he will begin renewing you and revitalizing you in him. So come to Jesus, trust in him, trust in his death, burial, resurrection for you to forgive you your sins that God would not count those sins against you but make you right with him. And then secondly, commit to practicing the disciplines, especially regular, daily, maybe morning and evening, maybe lunchtime, Bible intake, meditation, and prayer. Submit to the disciplines, not out of duty or drudgery, but because of your joy that you find in the Lord, and then allow that process, those spiritual disciplines, to change you. God will use it to change you step by step. And then just a a note that the goal of spiritual disciplines are not the disciplines themselves, right? This is not a checklist of things to do. When Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, train yourself for what? Not just so that you can say you read your Bible and meditated and prayed. Train yourself, discipline yourself, exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. What God is doing is he is transforming us, his people, into the image of Christ. The reason he gives this to us is that he makes us more like Jesus. And that's exactly what will bring the blessedness to us. And then this didn't fit anywhere else in the sermon, but I'll add it as a... Uh, as the close here. I listened to Paul Washer on Psalm 1, uh, which is good, is long, longer than this. Um, But he made just a a pithy statement I thought was great. So the reason that we practice the spiritual disciplines, the reason that we meditate on God's word is to grow into Christ's likeness, but it's also so that we can be a blessing to others. And he said this, it's a paraphrase, but he said, a tree never eats its own fruit. You bear fruit to bless others. So as we're, as we're growing into Christ-likeness, it is not so that we can benefit. It is so that we can bring praise and glory to God who creates the growth and so that we can be a blessing to others, that our fruit can be a blessing to those that are around us, that our shade can be comfort to those around us, that we can create fun climbing trees for you kiddos to enjoy and be blessed as you're blessed in Christ. May God accomplish these great works among us here at First Street. Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious Father, Lord, we uh, come before you again and are just so thankful for your word that you have revealed to us both life and good and death and cursing. You have shown us blessing and wickedness, and you have laid before us very clearly how to enter into the congregation of the righteous. And it is not by our works, it is by trusting in you and in your work upon the cross, Jesus. So I pray for anyone here this morning that they would not leave without talking to the person next to them, the person that invited them, or talking to an elder or deacon about coming into a relationship with you, that they can begin to grow into this blessed man. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in the disciplines, not out of duty or drudgery, not as a form of legalism, but as a form of delight and joy. Lord, revive our hearts. Help us to 
stoke our minds in meditation and that we would not be emptying our minds as the meditation of the world and new age meditation, but that we would look at biblical meditation of filling our minds with your word, that we would delight in your law and that it would give us life. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.